This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. On February 24th, 2022, while the world watched on in horror and disbelief, Russian forces invaded the independent nation of Ukraine. While Ukrainian forces continue to fight for democracy, their right to sovereignty, and the soul of their country, my guests today are working to ensure their stories are told. Ida Sawyer is the director of the Crisis and Conflict Division at Human Rights Watch. The organization is currently on the ground documenting alleged war crimes in Ukraine. Sawyer shared with us some of their devastating findings and what the organization plans to do with these reports. But first, I'm talking with Australian photojournalist Bryce Wilson. Wilson has documented the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine since 2015. He was the first Australian journalist to embed with the Ukrainian Special Forces covering the conflict in the Donbass region. His work has been featured on ABC Australia, The Daily Mail, and Sky News. And despite his resistance to social media, Wilson's Instagram and Twitter feed provided a gripping account of the front lines of the Russian invasion. It's crazy. I can't believe that uh, Russia has declared war on Ukraine. That as soon as the declaration... Oh, that's a missile. That's a wow. missile. That's a f***ing missile. That was one of those like... Holy Bryce Wilson joined me at 5 a.m. Australian time after returning home for a well-deserved break from reporting in Ukraine. I wanted to know how he found his way to conflict photojournalism. I found photography through a hobby. So initially I did do quite general work like that, like did some food photography, did photographs of my friends, made portraits. The war in Ukraine was in Australian television a lot because Australians were killed when flight MH17 was shut down and the news coverage sort of stopped around the war. And then I realized that with the skills and the equipment that I had, I could probably do my own photojournalism. And that's when I went to Ukraine the first time in 2015. Who sent you there? 
I was freelancing, so I had just lost a job and I used my redundancy payout to fund my work in Ukraine that first time. And maybe naively, I contacted the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense and they told me that even freelance media could embed with the military so long as I completed some forms and had body armor and everything. So yeah, in about mid-2015, I went to Ukraine for the first time with my gear and the cash from my redundancy payout and just figured out how to do journalism. And ever since then, that was kind of the catalyst for why I returned because the relationships that I had and made with people there from my first experiences in many ways stuck with me and they're still the same people. I'm still in touch with a lot of the people I met during that embed in 2015 and they've all helped me with my work as it has continued. So I'm assuming then that you had no formal training in terms of photojournalism or journalism. For, for my radio audience, he's shaking his head no with a sly smile on his face. So no formal training in photojournalism. The answer is no, correct? Yeah. Even education-wise, my background was in writing. And professionally, I was working in different creative services agencies. Like I had all these fundamental little skills that were a bigger part of doing multimedia production work, but no formal training in journalism or anything related to that. So the embed in 2015 was your first real assignment of something uh, that would be uh, a precursor of the work you've been doing, and you're there. What was going on in 2015 that you were chronicling? So the assignment that I had sent myself on in 2015, that was my first practical experience doing journalism. And it was very much a thing of learn in the field because the place where I was sent was a small town very close to the Donetsk airport, which is just on the fringe of one of the occupied capital cities in the east, where there is now a major escalation seemingly imminent. I just say that because after the Russian military's goals in Kiev region and throughout Ukraine have evolved a little bit, they're now focusing on the eastern part of Ukraine and they're talking about that being the primary objective. So it seems to me very likely that there will be a major escalation of the war in that area specifically, not just in Kiev and western Ukraine. And so back then, a war has been going on in Ukraine for eight years. The Russian military annexed Crimea and then was directly involved in 2014 uh, and 2015 in essentially fomenting a separatist uprising in some parts of the country. Small groups of people that wanted to break away from Ukraine, very small groups of people received military support, funding, as well as espionage level stuff from the Russian military and government. And they broke off two parts of Eastern Ukraine called the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic. Those territories actually occupied a lot of Eastern Ukraine. And then from 2014, the Ukrainian military and a lot of those were volunteers pushed the so-called People's Republic's military forces very close to the border with Russia. And then the Russian military launched an incursion, sent their military over the border from Russia into Ukraine to fight the Ukrainian military. Since then, a number of 
somewhat effective ceasefires have been implemented called the Minsk agreements. And those Minsk agreements largely froze the front line and conflict in place where it was before this current invasion started. So when I went there in 2015 for the first time, there was still significant fighting every day. So the Russians have been doing little out-of-town tryouts, if you would. They've been doing a lot of little rehearsals for this big invasion for quite a while now, correct? Yeah, it's a really great way to put it. And I think the thing that separates now versus previously, the Russian military, for example, when they shot down flight MH17, there was a whole bunch of shadow play and trickery around, you know, it wasn't us. It was people that had our hardware. We're not actually in the Donbass. It's people that found our tanks. There was this joke that they were miners and they found all this equipment stored underground. There was all this proof that heavily implicated the Russian military as having been in the east of Ukraine, but they would really play into the uncertainty of it all. And it was almost a a proxy war where the Russian military was directly involved and on the ground, but they hid behind the idea that it was uh, separatists doing this. It was rebels. Yes. And they blamed it on separatists and or rebels in Luhansk and Donetsk, correct? Because you were there for both of those. That's correct. Incursions, yes. right? And, and so, but they, but there were no direct Soviet troops on the ground, tanks and weaponry on the or were there? There were. So Russian military hardware and soldiers were present at some of the largest battles in Donbass in the early days of the war in 2014 and 2015. And because the Ukrainian military counteroffensive to recapture the occupied territories was so effective, the so-called separatist forces were pushed very close to the Russian border. And that's when the Russian military started launching artillery strikes from across the Russian border into Ukraine. They sent their military forces in to fight the Ukrainian military actively. And the battles where the Russian military participated then were some of the most bloody in the history of the war at that point. And in one battle, for example, called Ilovysk, a large percentage of the Ukrainian armed forces were encircled. And during a breakout humanitarian corridor, which was offered by the Russian military, a large convoy of Ukrainian military personnel left. And then the Russian military bombarded that convoy with artillery and indirect fire. And it killed potentially up to a thousand people. During these Donbass battles that you covered in six, seven years ago, were atrocities playing then when you hear reports about what's going on in Ukraine now, does it match what you saw years ago? I mean, as a matter of what level, because I saw atrocious things. I saw still, it's very surreal to me because the scenes and events I'm seeing now did take place seven years ago. I saw destroyed neighborhoods, maimed bodies, missing legs, civilians' homes, destroyed civilians killed by the war. I saw mass graves, on not on the same scale, but graves where the local separatist forces in that area had just dumped people, civilians from the nearby area, dumped their own dead personnel when they left. A lot of the events that we're seeing now did take place then. It's just the scale now. I think because of that same reason that the Russian forces were not there, quote unquote, 
there was a lot more subterfuge, whereas now that it's all out in the open and not in the shadows, everything has been ramped up and scaled up significantly. So therefore, I'm assuming you you weren't surprised at all when things took the turn they took this year. It was heading in that direction, correct? I felt like in the days before the invasion was announced, I was already out in the Donbass reporting on infrastructure damage in Donbass, which had been a big focus of my work. And I was given information from contacts within the security services setting very clear dates when they expected that the invasion would take place. And I will say that they were very accurate. The dates that they provided turned out to be correct retroactively, and the invasion was actually moved by the Russian military and government. And the dates I was given initially were spot on, 100% accurate. And then I have friends that were serving in the military and they were telling me to, we're being told we can't leave the base. We're being told that we should prepare, that the invasion is likely to start tomorrow. So a couple of days out, I knew pretty definitively that it was happening, but weeks beforehand, I was there to report on the escalation that was already taking place because in the days and weeks leading up to the invasion, there was fighting in the Donbass like I'd never experienced before. Mm. Like the severity of artillery, the damage to homes, ceasefire violations, civilians being killed, like it all objectively increased exponentially in the like two weeks before the war started. When you show up there to Donbass again a few years later, that you know the lay of the land, obviously you know the territory, you know where to go to be safe or their place like where does Bryce Wilson sleep? Who's paying the bills? When you go on these freelance projects, uh, you have to fund this yourself or did somebody pay for it? I had some offers to help with funding, but I didn't align with the organizations ethically. They were sort of towing almost this pro-Russian media viewpoint, which was very concerning for me. But for all intents and purposes, all of my work since I started has been funded by Mm -hmm. myself. Um, This was the first time that I've had any moderate commercial success for my work but making money from doing it had never been a big priority to me like again maybe naively I thought there was like a paragon sort of value in journalism and the the value of it to society and that was the main motivator for me so if I'm doing an assignment in somewhere like Donbass I would stay in a city or a town very close to the front line and then each day we would drive out Uh, to the areas where we needed to go to do reporting. But even 30 or 40 kilometers away from the front line, life is relatively normal. In the evenings, I would go to a bar with some of my colleagues and we would eat a pizza for dinner and maybe uh, have a beer or something like this. Like, it's very surreal because in Kiev, for example, before the current uh, invasion, people would live very normally and you could almost fault them for that like forgetting there was a war 700 kilometers away but people even 30 kilometers away from the front line would forget there was a war at times and that was very strange why do you think that is that sounds something peculiar to them i mean even in the united states someone said to me that 9-11 will eventually take its place alongside pearl harbor it'll become a very distant memory Mm -hmm. and americans will forget 
uh, this uh, almost inconceivable event that happened uh, here in New York in uh, 2001. But there's nothing peculiar to the Ukrainian nature that makes them want to carry on with life as they live it? Or is there something, or is there something unique about them you've found? I mean, there are lots of things that are unique about Ukrainian people. One example I can give, I was working in a village which had just been struck by artillery. A person's home was completely destroyed. Their neighbors' homes were destroyed. They were quite literally pulling the bodies of their neighbors out of homes around them. And I, with my colleagues, we hadn't eaten that day. And they just made us food in the destroyed ruins of their homes while they themselves were struggling. Like, mm. I've never experienced hospitality on that mm. level before. And I don't know if anyone would help people in that instance, but we were just strange people, media personalities. So it was me and two people who just came to them and they fed us out of the kindness of their own hearts. And I think that to me was probably one of the most unique experiences I had during my assignment. I don't know how people live so close to the front line and kind of forget about the war, but I think it is because primarily the war had been going on for eight years at this point. It's part of the everyday fabric of life in some areas, almost aesthetically too. There's a whole culture around the conflict in eastern Ukraine lives people go from checkpoints from one side of the contact line to the other every day like there's a whole micro society and culture and experience of life solely because of the war that had been going on for eight years at that point i also think that where you have extended conflicts like uh, vietnam and so forth that people decide and this is my opinion they make a decision to carry on with life as they know it because, you know, it could be over tomorrow. You know, you, you can live in fear mm -hmm. or you can try to normalize things to the best of your ability and try to, you know, raise your children and grow your food. Or you know, Obviously, I'm talking about Southeast Asia now. But one thing I'm wondering, what would you say is your understanding of what percentage, what fraction, is it a significant fraction of people who want to reunify with Russia? What percentage of the Ukrainian people are Russian sympathizers, from your experience? In my experience, even in the East, I met very few people that truly wanted that unification. There's a lot of information around why the separatist republics exist, what are their motivators, what is the true support numbers. And to the best of my knowledge, even earlier in the war, like in the days before the separatist sort of uprisings happen, it was single percentage figures and low single percentage figures. And as time has gone on, the eastern areas, there's been a mass exodus of people into government controlled territories. And now I believe that uh, a significant percentage of people there have received Russian passports. And there's a whole I guess, uh, absorption of that region into Russia effectively. But in my experience from west to east of the country, north to south, like pre and during the war, I never met anybody that truly supported this sentiment that like we in Ukraine want to be a part of Russia. It's not to say that they don't exist. I talked with people that had more pro-Russian ideologies, but I never met someone outright. Is it just about tradition? Uh, what is it about Russia, let alone what is it about Putin, that they want to align themselves with that government and that country? I think 
Yeah, so many people in those areas might have had memories of when the Soviet Union was a bigger part mm -hmm. of their lives and economically, especially in the Donbass during the height of the USSR and the history of the Soviet Empire, the Donbass was a major economical center. It's where a lot of the mining infrastructure is. There was a lot of science and metallurgical studies and stuff that took place out there. People in those areas lived pretty good lives at the height of the USSR. Some people I talked to were, or one of the guys was a driver that I worked with. He was a former Marine in the Russian military. He deployed to Afghanistan. His memories and experiences of life are completely different than someone is living on their pension and struggling. I met another person who lived in Donetsk during sort of more economically affluent times and they shared similar things like all they knew was under ukrainian control that the area had fallen into disrepair and things like this and they i guess associated that their lives were better when russia was in control of that area when you started out and you had to teach yourself the business of photojournalism especially in a war-torn country what were some of the most important things you had to learn up front and what do you wish mm. you knew <laughs> What do you wish you do knew then that you know now? What have you learned about the job? I wish when I started I had better language skills because for the first couple of times I went there, I didn't speak any local languages. And when I would come back home, I was taking Russian language classes and practicing through the internet and everything too. And I wish I'd have started that process sooner because even an extra year, an extra 18 months of practice probably would have been hugely beneficial to my work and skills. And I think too, one thing I realized is doing this sort of work, like it does have a toll, it takes a toll on you. And for me, it's this realization when you witness life in these events that it changes your whole perception of even your reality back home. And that's what you can't undo. Like for me at least filters or affects the filter or the lens through which you see your life and after i went there and have worked there it changed a lot of the things that i think about life philosophically practically professionally socially like it it made me a much different person now you do some of your reporting or you post some of your stuff on social media correct that's correct I'd used uh, Twitter primarily for my work. And then during the early days of the invasion, I was live streaming updates to people on Instagram. How has that changed the way you work? I mean, having that immediacy and posting your own stuff, do you find it beneficial? When the invasion started in the city I was in, within seconds or minutes of Putin declaring war, they were already dropping bombs very close to my house. And... I recognized that the war had started and I put my body armor on and started live streaming. So from literally the earliest minutes of the war, I was live streaming to tens of thousands of people on Instagram. And that in and of itself is such a fundamental change to the way that people consume news and media. Like I didn't need to go on television to inform and share news with people. I was literally from the palm of my hand, from my iPhone, streaming to people all around the world. And at one moment, a Russian cruise missile flew no more than 50 meters above my head. And I was live streaming that and showing people that in real time. 
And then that clip uh, went viral, as people say, and it was almost like a defining moment of the first day of the invasion, like the footage of that event. But I went from being someone who was very fundamentally anti-social media, like I used it as little as possible, to a large percentage of my work being attributed to social media. So it's been for me a very... It's like a contradiction in terms of how I want to conduct myself, but social media and the new internet and new media has changed my life in a big way. Photojournalist Bryce Wilson. If you'd like more insight into the history of the Russia-Ukraine crisis, check out my interview with New York Times correspondent and Putin biographer Stephen Lee Myers. His book, The New Tsar, The Rise and Reign of Vladimir Putin, chronicles the ascent of the Russian president. Putin only won 50% of the vote, and, you know, it wasn't a slam dunk. And since then, Putin made sure that the ways elections are managed, um, there's no uncertainty in the voting. He stripped them of the competitive uncertainty that makes them truly democratic, either in terms of who can run and then the actual voting itself. Because transitions in Russia have never gone well. Mm. Even during the empire, it was always tumultuous. Hear more of my conversation with author Stephen Lee Myers at heresthething.org. After the break, Bryce Wilson tells us why the Ukrainian forces are some of the best and most experienced in the world. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year 
equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Photojournalist Bryce Wilson spent the last few months in Ukraine reporting on the Russian invasion. His breathtaking first-person live streams show the world what it feels like to be on the front lines. I wanted to know if the balance of power is affected by the Ukrainian forces' preparedness or the Russian forces' lack thereof. It's definitely both. The Russian military is critically underperforming in every facet, logistically, war fighting, the equipment itself, maintenance. There are so many facets as to why the Russian military performance has been what it is. But the Ukrainian armed forces too, in the Donbass, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian military personnel have done deployments in the active war zone. The Armed forces of Ukraine, in my opinion, are probably the most contemporarily experienced military in the world. They are trained extensively over the last eight years. They're motivated to defend their homes. They're equipped. Like There are so many uh, variables that go into why they've been so effective. But I do believe that people overestimated the Russian military capabilities and underestimated the Ukrainian military's capabilities. Did the citizens of Ukraine, were they surprised that the Russians invaded or they weren't surprised? I think people were absolutely surprised. People I speak to from the east to the west, even leading up to the invasion, people were still convinced, oh, it's not going to happen. It's, you know, this is just fear mongering. And I think in many ways people were conditioned because of the eight years of war. They didn't understand how to view the threat objectively or in context. Even when the invasion came on the morning, there were bombs falling in the city in Kramatorsk where I was. And I was just talking to people who were casually going to work still. They were saying like, well, I've got to go to my job. Like I have a duty. I won't stop working until like I'm told to essentially. So I think up until the very, the last moment, people were convinced it wasn't going to happen. And even when the war did happen, people were still leaving evacuation essentially until there were bombs landing at the end of their street. Like, I don't think anybody took the threat or the risk seriously. Why? And I don't know why. I, as I described, the war in Donbass, it was shadow play. There was subterfuge and trickery. The Russian military is there, but they're not saying they're there. There's a huge difference between a proxy war like that and an active, full-scale, multi-front invasion of an independent nation. But even myself, professionally and personally, I couldn't imagine that it was going to happen. Just the scale of something like that is so 
history changing to send tens of thousands of guys rolling across the border with tanks and planes and uh, fighter jets, bombers, naval support, just the whole thing, just the scale, I think, boggles the mind. But what do you think the Russians want? Do they want to just destroy things? Is Putin someone who just wants to have a military conquest and then leave and there's no political aftermath? What's his goal? What does he want? Well, me personally, I just see this as a continuation of Russian hostilities towards Ukraine and the concept of Ukrainian independence. This has been perpetuated for centuries. Historically, the occupying power in the area of Russia, they have forcefully starved millions of people during the Holodomor. There were political persecutions against people in Ukraine. The Ukrainian language was essentially forbidden. This, to me, one element of it is just a continuation of this anti-Ukrainian sentiment in the context of them existing as an independent state. Because even in recent days, there have been comments from Russian political leaders where they have essentially said, we think it's even offensive that the idea of Ukraine even exists. Like, it's just another part of Russia. So I think the military goal in the early days really was to capture Kiev. And I think that the Russian military and their analysts expected that the Ukrainian military and government would just capitulate very quickly and turn over. That hasn't happened now. And now I think the goal is to show through capturing the east and the south of the country that it wasn't in vain, essentially. The Russian military could level the whole country. And in some places I went to, whole villages and cities are just destroyed by bombing. And people, volunteers, I would go there and help reconstruct this place. It's a country I love. My friends are there. I would be involved. I'm sure tens of thousands of people from around the world will go and help. Yes, yes, they will. Ultimately, this is just an attempt to intimidate the concept of Ukraine being an independent nation and whatever their objectives were, if it was to force the capitulation of the country, I don't think it will happen based on the current trend. How do you think this is going to end? I'm not sure. My my gut feeling around how the conflict would continue or end was always that there would be a major escalation of fighting in the east because it's territory that Russia had previously attempted to take, whether directly or indirectly. I believe that the war fighting there could potentially continue for years as it already has. I don't expect that Kiev will be occupied. I don't expect that the majority of Ukraine will be occupied. But I think areas where the Russian border and Ukrainian border exists, there will be ongoing fighting for months, potentially. And I think really it's a matter of time before the sanctions and also economic um, situation in Russia begins to become a bit of a problem. But I don't expect that the Ukrainian military or its people will lose their will to continue fighting. And when stuff like the Moskva being sunk happens. It's a huge morale boost for people. So I think it's just a matter of time before there are concessions and maybe the peace talks continue. But I do suspect that fighting in the East will continue for months or years. You think that the sanctions are having any effect on the Russians? I'm not really sure the machinations of it all. I just know on the ground because I have people in my close personal life who have relationships with people in Russia that it's making a difference. This is affecting the way people live their lives. And 
I would assume maybe naively that when the average person's life starts being affected, that's when they actually get involved with sort of pushing for change. Now, of course, one of the quickest ways you can engender support from the American people is talk about war crimes and talk about, you know, gases and so forth. Are you under the, are you under the impression that the Russians are actually committing war crimes over there? Yes, it's my opinion based on things that I saw, witnessed, read, have had reported to me that the Russian military is conducting war crimes in those areas. I saw people who were executed while they were bound. I had reports independently verified to me by multiple organizations of just egregious sexual assault, often on some children. I've also heard reports that people are being forcibly taken and sexually assaulted. And I did read a report that someone had been taken from one of the previously occupied parts of Kiev and then dumped at the border uh, after they'd basically been raped by the military. Looting has been taking place. There was a story of a Russian soldier stealing a MacBook and he took the armor plate out of his vest and put the MacBook in there to hide it. And he ended up being shot. And the MacBook is actually why he was killed. If he was wearing his armor, he probably would have survived the bullet. So there's like mass war crimes going on in the previously occupied areas. And I hate to think what's happening in places where there's not so much media coverage because the mass influx of journalists into those previously occupied areas is why they discovered so many atrocities. What's your evaluation of Zelensky and what do you see in country? What do people there, does he enjoy the reputation that he has here in the United States? How do people feel about him over there? I was at Zelensky's inauguration many years ago, and it's very surreal for me to have seen this huge narrative of his character, quite literally a character because he has an acting background and he's a very interesting person. But he, in my opinion, will be remembered in the same vein as famous Ukrainian poets, people who were invested in the idea of Ukraine's independence. Like, Zelensky, in my opinion, is a hero through his leadership. And if Ukraine falls, it means his family are affected too. It means he's at risk. He was at risk of being assassinated many times. He's not running away. He's not leaving. He's doing what I think many Ukrainian people identify with, and that's sticking up for his country. And I think that's why many Ukrainians are very proud of him and it shows that the people stand with him and they identify with what he is doing. Are you going to go back? Uh, Yes, I'm sure that my work in Ukraine will continue indefinitely. Like my goal, I don't want to be a war journalist specifically. My work and interest is Ukraine. The experiences I've had there and the things I've learned have changed me a lot and I really appreciate even when I have opportunities like this to share with people because I think, as you said, this war brought a lot of attention to Ukraine, but things have been going on there for eight years and 20 years before that and 30 years before that. And I think it's such a diverse and rich part of the world and rich region, and I'm still discovering things, and I hope I'll be able to continue sharing that with people. Well, listen, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. Photojournalist Bryce Wilson. If you're enjoying this conversation, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend and follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
When we come back, Ida Sawyer of Human Rights Watch discusses the documentation of Russia's human rights abuses in Ukraine. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, The CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. When the recent atrocities in Bucha were reported, it became clear that these events were violations of international humanitarian law and the Geneva Conventions. Ida Sawyer is the director of the Crisis and Conflict Division for Human Rights Watch. Sawyer spent eight years on the ground in the Democratic Republic of Congo, covering human rights abuses and supervised teams in Syria and Yemen. Ida Sawyer told me about the primary objective of her organization. 
Human Rights Watch, we're an international, non-governmental human rights organization. So we work in over 90 countries around the world, and we document human rights abuses. So that's attacks on civilians, laws of war violations during armed conflicts, women's rights violations, children's rights, refugees' rights issues. And we go out, we collect the facts. We have over 500 staff working around the world. We speak to victims and witnesses and others try to figure out what happened. And then we publish our findings in reports and other documents, videos, and then we push for for justice. So we push for those most responsible for the abuses to be held to account. And then we also push for policy changes to, to end the abuses that we've documented. What do areas of the world that have chronic human rights issues... What do those areas of the world, is there something that they have in common? Is it a lockdown on the media and dictatorial control of the country? Do you find human rights abuses flourish in places like that more readily? Yes, definitely. I mean, there are, there are different kinds of chronic human rights abuses in different regions. But I think in in countries where you have more authoritarian governments, where you don't have freedom of expression, freedom of the press, and there's crackdowns on political opposition leaders, journalists, activists, that's where we see some of the worst abuses. And that can sometimes be you know, related to abuses linked to access to healthcare, education, and those sorts of human rights as well. For most people, when the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, when Putin and Zelensky look like they're going to go to another level, you know, many Americans, and this is very common in America, they sit there like, huh, you know, what's Russia's beef with the Ukraine? You know what I mean? Like, what's the, it's all new information for them. And so for you, did you know this was coming? Yeah, I mean, we were definitely watching it closely, and our Ukraine team, we have we have a researcher working full-time on Ukraine and our broader Europe and Central Asia team have been working on on the conflict in Ukraine since 2014. And, you know, since I've started being, you know, focusing so closely on this, every Ukrainian you talk to reminds you, you know, the war didn't start in February. This right. has been going on. So it's definitely something that we were aware of. And then by late last year, early this year, it seemed more and more likely that it would really escalate. You're hearing some pretty ugly, horrible stories about abuses there and that uh, Putin and the Russians are war criminals and they're um, doing all kinds of horrible things. Your organization, you have people on the ground there in Ukraine, I assume? Yes, we do. And they report to you that they see this themselves. They, they, they have first-hand knowledge of these things themselves, correct? Yes, yes. So that's what our teams are doing and that's you know really trying to understand the context for the violations that are reported. So, for example, there's been so much attention on Bucha, so that's the area just north of Kyiv that mm. the Russian forces retreated from, and that's allowed Ukrainian authorities to retake control. Journalists and others now have access, and we're seeing just you know, horrific images of the trail of violence that the Russian forces left behind, bodies strewn along the streets, reports of mass graves, and and just all of this violence and destruction. But what our team there is doing is trying to understand, okay, yes, many people died, but how did they die and what were the circumstances and does this amount to, to war crimes? 
How did they die and what were the circumstances? So our team is there documenting now, and it's it's clear that the Russian forces occupied this area from around March 4th until March 31st. And there wasn't one single massacre, but there were a series of many different incidents, lots of summary executions, as well as other cases of targeted killings and indiscriminate attacks on civilians. So what we've seen is Russian forces going door to door, interrogating the men, and then sometimes dragging them out and either shooting them in their yard in front of their house, or in some cases taking them to a detention center that they'd set up. And then later their families would find that they'd been killed sometimes with you know, a bullet to the head and their bodies lying on the street or behind different buildings. We've also seen just indiscriminate attacks. Sometimes if people who were sheltering in their basements came out to look for food, or in one case, a man went out on his balcony to smoke a cigarette and he was shot in the neck. So that sort of just violence, at indiscriminate violence against civilians. And, the, and the, when, when you say indiscriminate, I mean, I, I, I appreciate that much of it is indiscriminate, or, or also, in addition, are there some instances where the Russians have sympathizers there, they, or they have people who, out of fear, are providing them with information and saying, 1017 uh, uh, Main Street down the block there, uh, 1017 Leonid Brezhnev Boulevard, uh, head down there, and that guy is part of a cell, and that guy is part of the troublemakers. Are a lot of people getting ratted out there? So, I mean, and are a lot of people capitulating and helping the Russians to identify these people to send uh, shockwaves of terror throughout the communities that they're in? So, what we've seen in Bucha, it's not clear that they're targeting any members of particular selves. What they say is that they're quote, hunting Nazis, and they're definitely looking for weapons in people's houses and you know, anyone with potential connections to the territorial defense forces. But many of the, the cases that we've documented, it doesn't appear that the individuals who were, who were targeted had any links to military groups or, or otherwise. But we have heard cases in other areas that the Russian forces have occupied of specific targeted attacks against, for example, journalists and activists and others who they might deem to be a particular threat to them. So when you go there, what possible hope do you have of changing the situation in a place with someone who is as unilateral as Putin is? I mean, Putin is rolling those. T I mean, the Russian army is a kick-ass army. They got it all. They got all the, the, the bombs and planes. That's what that's what they spend their money on. They don't feed their people. They don't take care of their people. What hope do you have of possibly negotiating with Putin? How do you feel about that? Do you think there's any hope that this is going to end? I think there is hope, and I think that what we've seen in other in other cases is that it can often take time, but that if there is enough pressure and if the, the documentation is there, you can see people being brought to justice. And I think something that's really surprised me, and I've never experienced this in other conflicts that I've worked on, is just how quickly the international community mobilized and the International Criminal Court launched an investigation right away. The United Nations Human Rights Council launched a commission of inquiry. There's been all of this pressure and and Putin hasn't felt to this pressure before. So it might take time, but I think that there is a possibility that we could see see justice, but we have to keep pushing forward. And I think it's important also to remember that the types of crimes that we're seeing and we're documenting 
in Ukraine now, they're very similar to crimes that our team documented in Syria several years ago, committed by Russian forces. Some of these same commanders were involved mm -hmm. and they got away with it and they were never held to account. And that impunity has helped facilitate, has allowed them to continue with these same sorts of abuses that we're seeing now in Ukraine. So I really hope, you know, with all of this mobilization that we're seeing, this pressure, these investigations that have started, that we'll actually finally see some justice this time. Do you have any hope that the Russians will get kicked out of the Security Council? I think we're a long way from that, you but do. they were just voted out of the Human Rights Council. So I think that sends an initial important signal that they really have no place there, given this the horrific crimes that are being committed now. At the very least, in terms of appearances, I have a lot of faith in the United Nations, and I hope that they do kick them out of the Security Council. As you said, it's a, it's a long shot, but I think that we need, to, we need to have people come to the table who recognize that war itself is obsolete that precisely what the Russians are doing now is obsolete. You can't go in there and completely level a whole country, rely on Western countries to come in and clean up the mess. And um, I feel like someone's got to be able to negotiate with them and, and, and start a global introduction of an idea that war itself is a war crime. Forget about there's things you can't do during war. You can't do war, you know what I mean? How do we make war itself uh, obsolete? Now, um, do you think that sanctions work? I think they, they can work. Here, I think it's also a question of are they being implemented? So are you know, are we actually looking for all of the resources that these individuals have and making sure they're being seized? There's the question of, of network sanctions. So not just the individuals, but those in the companies that are connected to them, but hidden a bit, making sure they're targeted as well. There's this muscle you developed very keenly to look at uh, what people do to abuse political power. How does it affect you when you come home? Has Human Rights Watch ever brought a case against an American government? Yes, definitely. So we have our U.S. program is actually our biggest country program. So we do a lot of work here in the U.S. And so I was in New York before moving back to D.C. and worked in, in 2020 on a lot of the police violence and abuse during the George Floyd protests. Uh -huh. And we did we did a big project on the crackdown in Mott Haven in the South Bronx and just documented how the police, the NYPD, kettled protesters there and then just used complete unprovoked violence, beating up, cracking down on these protesters, um, and really you know, worked with other groups to push for push for some accountability. We also did work around voting rights during the last elections. And then we also look at the conduct of U.S. forces internationally and strikes on civilian targets, for example, and pushing for, for accountability, reparations, and that type of thing. So we, we definitely do work on the U.S. and, and keep Guantanamo. on that as well. Guantanamo, yes, definitely. Big focus. You've dedicated your life to this incredibly difficult work. You know, it's, it's ugly. You learn the realities of a lot of horrible things that have been happening to people. What keeps you wanting to do this work? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, we do hear a lot of just really horrible stories about the worst of humanity, but... We also, I feel like 
people want their story to be told. They want people to know what they what they experienced, what they suffered. So we do play an important role in giving giving their stories a voice. And then it's also when we do have successes. So when we finally see justice um, and and like it's it's seen that that we can make make a difference. What is victory for Human Rights Watch? What is justice? Yeah. So I think one of one of the big victories we had was with Bosco Antigonda. So he was a warlord from an armed group backed by neighboring Rwanda, and we had documented his crimes for over a decade. Mass, large-scale massacres, mass rapes, sexual violence. He himself uh, had raped women who were held under, under their control, uh, recruitment of children, just a, a litany of abuses that we documented. And eventually the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for him, and he was transferred to The Hague and put on trial and later convicted for war crimes and crimes against humanity. Was he in prison? So I think he is in prison, yeah, in The Hague. He's in prison in the Netherlands? Yes. What what sentence was he given? So 30 years. So he was sentenced to 30 years for war crimes or human rights abuses in The Hague. This guy, wow, that's that's yes. that's amazing to get a guy like that who's real, who real kingpin, a guy mm-hmm. who has a lot of murder and death and blood on his hands and has destroyed the lives of countless people. To see that guy get locked up in prison, that must have been very, very satisfying. Well, is there another spot in the world? Is is Ida Sawyer headed somewhere? You don't have to say, but do you have another location you want to go to next? Well, I am probably heading to Ukraine next week, so keeping the focus there for. For, now. for the time being. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. And if you do head over there, please be careful. Thank you so much. My thanks to Ida Sawyer and Bryce Wilson. This episode was produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing is brought to you by iHeart Radio. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! 
Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.